Hi, I'm Dee Hicks, and welcome to the School of Leadership, leveraged lessons from high-impact leaders. For the past 30 years, I've researched the disciplines, habits, mental models, and assumptions of the most effective leaders. This podcast takes what I've learned from over 2,000 of these influencers and distills it into practical tools and tips you can use immediately. So let's get started. Welcome back. Built for the Storm Part 2. You just heard me light using a butane lighter. It's a butane lighter, if you've been following my podcast for a while, that is a butane insert made for cigars inside of an old school Zippo. Ah, isn't that one of the coolest sounds? Never been a cigarette smoker, but I've always been fascinated by by these lighters. Instead of using the, the standard Zippo, the Zippo company made an insert for cigars. And so we bought a couple of those and we use those all the time. It's great. So what I'm lit here is a Gurkha Centurion cigar. If you are into cigars, you might want to Googleize that cigar. It's really a delightful cigar. I've had four or five of these, perhaps. Was given one uh, as a gift and uh, found it to be utterly delightful. And then uh, thought, I better hop on and find out what these are. Come to find out, <laughs> they've got quite the story behind them. You might want to look them up. They were custom designed for the Sultan of Brunei and then have been uh, now put into production since uh, with the same same quality, same seed cigars, same makers of the cigars and everything. And they're quite good. This is probably a good hour and a half long cigar. So I'll enjoy this. I'm also uh, enjoying some more of, surprisingly, I poured another half a shot of Noah's Mill Genuine Bourbon Whiskey, handmade in the hills of Kentucky. And it's in a bottle that looks kind of like an old wine bottle. And uh, the label looks like it was drawn by someone who... um, I don't know, someone who was in an art class or something like that, and, and they were just learning how to draw a mill, and it's, it's kind of cool. I sort of like it, uh, but there's nothing, uh, there's nothing about it that says high-quality bourbon. However, uh, upon enjoying that first drink in the last podcast that I recorded about an hour and a half ago, you're probably listening to this a week or two later, or who knows how, if you're listening to this a month later, I don't know, but we usually put these out about a week apart, so... Not been a week for me. It's been an hour and a half now, maybe almost two hours since I had the first sip of the Noah's Mill, and it's quite good. The first one I did, uh, the first shot, or a little less than a shot, I had one ice cube in it because it's always just a little, I'm a little nervous about these kind of looks like a super cheap bourbon, but it's really not. Uh, This time I did it without ice in it, and it doesn't bite quite as much with the first sip of it as it did with an ice cube in it. So no ice in this one, an enjoyable Gurkha Centurion cigar. By the way, if you know anything about airplanes, the Cessna P210N Centurion has become one of my favorite airplanes. Oh, just Googleize that if you want. Look at that as well. It's a pressurized uh, Cessna 210 that can get up into the flight levels and uh, has a nautical, uh, a range of maybe 500 to 700 nautical miles unless it's got uh, extended tanks. It's a pretty, pretty cool airplane. I've been looking at those. I'm in that stage where I'm completing my flight school and and, 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 and hot and heavy looking for an airplane to buy. So that's one of them. I've also been looking at the Piper Malibu, uh, the Matrix or the Meridian. Both of those are wonderful. And then 
Back to the Cessna Centurion, they also make a Centurion conversion that is called the Silver Eagle. I have fallen in love with that airplane. And if you uh, don't enjoy airplanes, fast forward about a minute and a half and we'll be done with this part of it. <laughs> but that airplane is a Piper P210 with a Rolls-Royce turbine engine conversion on it. And so they are uh, extremely capable airplanes. And there's not a lot of them out there for sale. I think there have only been maybe 150 or 200 of those maybe out in the marketplace. I might be off on that. There's not a lot of them out there. And when people buy them, they keep them forever which tells you something. So anyway, in the airplane shopping mode right now. So if you have an airplane that fits one of those two descriptions, pressurized, uh, six-seater, single-engine airplane that you own and want to sell or know somebody who does, hey, how about reaching out to me? You can connect with me right through this podcast, right through the Podbean platform or whatever platform you're on. You can connect with me right through there. Or you can send me an email directly. dhicks at dhicks.com. Send me an email if you know anybody who's got one of those airplanes. Anyway, we're not talking about airplanes. Yes, we are. We just talked about airplanes for three and a half minutes. So I guess we were talking about airplanes, cigars, and bourbon. What we're really talking about today are folks who are resilient and built for the storm. We've learned a few things over the years by studying these folks, by wanting to emulate them and and setting out myself and then a few of my senior team as well to become these kind of resilient people who we call built for the storm. Several of you are built for the storm. I can picture you. Built for the storm folks are folks who lean in under pressure and pressure actually makes them better instead of uh, making them brittle. So in our last episode of this podcast, we began a six-part series called Built for the Storm and, and laid out the introductory model, which is the concept of an iceberg, with the understanding that what enables you and I to have those observable above-the-water behaviors consistently over long periods of time under intense external, sometimes internal, pressure is what's under the waterline. And what's under the waterline are, starting at the bottom of that iceberg, our values and then our mental models, and then above our mental models are our specific habits, and above those habits are our disciplines. Those things are all in resilient people put in place by them on purpose and for the specific purpose of being resilient. And the reason that they do that is because they have a purpose. They have a cause. There's some reason above and beyond themselves why they feel like it's necessary for them to endure and to thrive under intense amounts of pressure. They are therefore built for the storm. So here we are with my cigar and my pictures of airplanes sprawled out in front of me over here on another computer. I've got three screens in front of me. One of them has the outline for what I'm going to share with you. The other one has the sound equipment on it. And the other one is opened up and it's on a big iPad and it has pictures of airplanes because <laughs> that's what I was doing between the recording of podcasts was shopping for airplanes. So here we are. Now we're seven or eight minutes into this and uh, it's time to time to get into the meat of this right here. But let me enjoy this cigar. It went out. I talked so long. It went out. So let's get this relit. Great cigar. Great cigar. My sound booth smells like cigars and bourbon dreams. <laughs> we had somebody step into it a while ago and go, what the heck? <laughs> Clouds of smoke before they get pulled out of the sound booth. It's a wonderful smell. So built for the storm part two. So you and I are learning that what's under the waterline is, uh, is what makes some people and then the teams that they build and then the people that they attract to work with them remarkably resilient. 
It makes them almost unbreakable. So in this conversation, let's take a look at the bottom, clear at the, the, the lower level of the iceberg, clear under the water at the very bottom, what we call their values. You know what a value is, remember. A value is, is the answer to the question, what really matters to me? If you know much about how the brain works and you've been paying attention over the years, we know that, that we have really, really fast parts of our brain and then slower, relatively, parts of our brain. And we have parts of our brain that are conceptual and almost nonverbal. And then that's usually considered mostly the right side of the brain. And then we have parts of our brain that order things and organize things and turns things into patterns and, and numbers and words and processes. That's usually the left side of our brain. Think of it as the context, which is the right side of the brain, and the text, <laughs> simply, which is the left side of the brain. And so when we talk about values, they are first right side of the brain. They are, they are nonverbal. They are truths. They are um, very, very powerful engines that drive us that are nonverbal. But of course, then, then we have to describe them and we turn them into words. This is how you and I would know in a flash whether something is worth struggling for or whether we should just not struggle for it. Should we work hard at it? Should we push ourselves and change? Or should we just ignore it? We know that in a flash because of these things called our values. Our values are, again, the answer to the question, what really matters to me? Now, we're all guided by values. It's just that some of us know what those values are and have given them words and descriptions. And some of us have then gone further and said, I don't want that value I want this value instead. I want this engine, this rudder, this compass instead of that one. And we've intentionally chosen those values. So we know that our values are formed, at least we believe that our values are formed kind of in stages. In the first stage, as we are very young, we imprint. You might want to call it like a bird almost imprinting on its caretaker right away. Uh, we kind of imprint the values of those around us who are our primary caretakers who are compassionate or, and kind that you, we notice when they're afraid or when they're worried or when they're relaxed. And we notice those things and then we make conclusions about what matters. We make conclusions about what's a threat and what's a reward. We do that very, very early in life by watching people around us. Parenthetically, this is why children raised in really intense, negative, abusive situations, why it's such an immoral and tragic thing, because at the very core of it, those people around them are completely destroying or messing with or upsetting the formation of their values. But aside from that, you and I, are, our, our values are formed in that first stage by kind of watching around us in a very oblique kind of way what's going on around us. And then somewhere along the line, maybe in our early post-single-digit years, you know, like 10, 11, 12, maybe on up into 13, 14, 15, then we notice that there are things that matter to the people around us that care for us that are different than the things that matter to other people over there that are more loosely connected to us. And so we start making comparisons. And then we go through this second stage of values formation. I'm, of course, simplifying this dramatically, where we try on the values of people who are extended away from us. Like we try on new clothes or new hairstyles or piercings in our ears or tattoos, which are, we try them on, of course, but they're kind of hard to take off. <laughs> you get the idea. So we go through this, this kind of uh, try it before you buy it stage of our values development. And then somewhere in there, paralleling the development of our brain, the neurological development of, of the prefrontal cortex of our brain, somewhere around 18, 19 years old, our brain is, is at a place now where it can actually understand the sophisticated through connections, through neurological connections value of values. So we then settle in to our values. 
Now, we've found, and through extensive research over the years, and I'm certain you're aware of this, that most of us return to the core values of the people who cared for us. If the people who cared for us didn't care for us, and they were abusive and awkward and horrible to be around, then those people the values that we form are the polar opposites of their values. So um, that's what happens in the third stage. So normally speaking, we would then settle into our own set of values without really consciously identifying them as values. We just know that this matters to me and that doesn't. So right around the age of 18, 19, 20, 21 maybe in some people or those who've had a lot of alcohol in their teenage years, that third step might not happen till they're in their early 30s or later, if it happens at all. But that third step is where our values are formed. All right. Now, that happens with all of us. Now, what we've noticed over, the t- over time is that folks who are resilient and built for the storm go through a fourth step. That fourth step is that they intentionally look at their values and then re-engineer them so that they will be resilient under pressure. The reason they do this is because they have been presented with an opportunity to have a cause or a purpose. They do not any longer live for themselves. That opportunity, of course, presented to all of us at some point in our lives, does not necessarily and naturally yield the chance for us to redesign or re-engineer our values. Some of us don't. We, at that moment or season in our life, choose to live for ourselves instead. We choose comfort over adventure, and we don't re-engineer our values. But we have found that those people who are built for the storm do re-engineer their values, and in so doing, they change everything. It is a fascinating, fascinating development that happens that sets them up to be built for the storm. We also know, let's pepper in some more neurology here, that simply our brain has three systems. Of course, as I describe this, you know our brain is much more sophisticated than this, but this is just a way of describing how these uh, value choices and behaviors interact with one another. Our three systems in our brain, I like to call system zero, system one, and system two. Borrowing from the work of Kahneman, Tversky, and many other people in behavioral economics, but also borrowing from neuroscience, system zero is our survival brain. And our survival brain has one purpose. Of course, you just guessed it, right? Survival. (laughs) Our survival brain is that part of our brain that's always on. It's always focused. It's always there. It's always working, even when we're asleep. Part of the way it keeps us alive is by moderating the amount of energy that we spend. And by energy, I mean physical, mental energy that keeps the body and the brain moving. Glucose and its various forms uh, are the source of that energy for us. So our survival brain basically says, why run if you can walk? Why walk if you could sit down? Why sit down if you could lay down? Why, why lay down if you could be asleep? That's our survival brain. It's moderating downward as much as possible with tremendous efficiency the amount of energy that we use at any given point in time at any given moment. And it also has another function, and that is that it tries to perceive and then manage through the two wiring harnesses we have in our body, one of them called the sympathetic nervous system, the other called the parasympathetic nervous system. Those two like wiring harnesses on a car or a motorcycle throughout our body tries to moderate and and perceive and interact with the world around us by filtering everything uh, that it perceives and putting it into one of two buckets, the threat bucket or the reward bucket. Those two systems are incredibly 
fast. The threat bucket is what, if we think of something in a threat bucket, it flips us into a stress and fear response. If we think of something in a reward bucket, it slows us down, it enables us to focus, we can look long term, joy comes in, etc., etc. So that's survival system. That's system zero in our brain. Above system zero sits system one in our brain, which is our habit system, simply put. Because survival is important, our brain wants to create habits wherever it possibly can, because it doesn't take much energy, if any, to power a habit. Um, habits are just natural ways of functioning that we have intentionally put in place. They feel natural. They weren't natural in the beginning, but they become natural for us, and they take no conscious thought. There are two kinds of habits. There are the habits that are under the surface that are usually physical and sometimes emotional. The second kind of habit, that first kind of habit, by the way, is like where do we hang our keys and how do we tie our shoes and how do we change lanes and all of that kind of stuff. How do we respond when we're nervous and afraid? And how do we respond when we're lonely? Those are all habits that require almost no conscious thought or conscious uh, focus. There's a second type of habit, which is what we call a mental habit. That's a mental model. It's a, it's a habit, habitual way of thinking that we put in place a while back. We'll talk about that in our next podcast. But in this podcast, then, we're, we're trying to understand how this all fits together in the how the brain interacts with all of these things, specifically our values. Then there's the second system. So we've got system zeros which is survival system one, which is our habit system, and system two, which is our focused goal system. That's our executive function system. We'll unpack all that stuff even a little bit more as we go along. All right, there. You just got through Neuroscience 101. <laughs> Neuropsychology 101. You know all this stuff. You might not have thought about it for a while, but you know all this stuff. Here's the point about describing to you our survival system at this moment in the podcast. Our survival brain, using that threat or reward filter is different in a resilient person who's built for the storm than in a brittle person who is buffeted and swamped by the storm. In the resilient person built for the storm, what is a threat to them is not a threat to the fragile person and reverse it. What is a threat to the fragile person is not a threat to the resilient person person because their values are different. They chose their values. They put their values in place. So a threat to you, if you're built for the storm, is in not engaging. Whereas, to simply put it, if someone's not built for the storm because of their values, that same engagement that they see you doing is a threat, perceived as a threat to them. This is why back to that beautiful Arab mare that we talked about in our last podcast. This is why she ran toward us. Even though we were a threat, it was less of a threat for her to run toward us than to run away from us. Not that horses have values, although if you were a horseman, you may argue with me. <laughs> but if you and I are guided by our values, then because of what matters to me, I will lean in and engage in what might look to others like a profound threat, but to me, it is a reward. Big deal, okay? I hope you got that, all right? Let me pause, take another sip of Noah's Mill. Handcrafted, hand-bottled. What the heck does that even mean? All right, now that we know that, Got a couple minutes left here in the podcast, so let's get into the actual meat of this. And <laughs> now you got the background. What are the values of people built for the storm? Pay attention to this because they may be yours. They chose these 
values, and they report when we've gotten to know them and studied them over the years, that they put those values in place intentionally in times of significant emotional protracted intensity. That's what Morris Massey calls a significant emotional event. They intentionally chose their values as a result of that significant emotional event. This is not getting a speeding ticket like that kind of thing. It's protracted, it's intense, and it rattles who we are. This, of course, doesn't seem to be true of fragile and brittle people. Here are their values. Are you ready? Is this you? They value service. I'm here to serve. It shows up everywhere, all the time, in every environment. They value being part of a larger landscape. They know that they live and move as a part of something bigger than themselves, and they love it. They value getting better over being the best. That's what some have called a growth mindset over a fixed mindset. They call it discovery. They call it learning. They're really curious. They value adventure over comfort. Next, they value impact. They want to make a specific kind of impact everywhere they go all the time. Some of them say, I, I want to dare everyone around me to be better because that's how I live. They value beauty. This is really intriguing. This showed up in all of our surveys and our studies and our interviews and our analogous observations of them. They value beauty. Then the next value that they have is that they value humility. That is, humility is confidence and curiosity mixed together. And then they value authenticity. That is, they value direct experience over reports of an experience. They value progress over avoiding failure. They value direct conversations over hearsay. They value reality over fantasy. All of that is under authenticity. The next value is they have is that they value joy, laughter, celebration. It's really important to them. They want to live a life that's worth celebrating. They have a core value as well that perhaps motivates all the rest of these. Some have called it a bias for action. They value action. It relates to authenticity. It relates to impact. It relates to humility. They act. They don't sit around and think and plan and write papers about thinking and planning. <laughs> they act. They lean in. And then one, when one of any of those values above are threatened in some way, they lean in, they act, they spring into action. They have a bias for action. So, did you see yourself, not in your wish list, but in your actions, in any of those values listed above? These resilient people, these people built for the storm, they show up. These, these values that they have show up in all of their habits and all their disciplines and all of their observable behaviors. They're at the core of who they are. They're at the bottom of that iceberg. These values of theirs show up in their choices. They show up on their calendar. They show up in their bank accounts. These values are the why behind the what. They fuel their expectations. They are the compass that guides their internal engines and fuels it. They are the answer to the question. All of their values are the answer to the question, what really matters. So unlike fragile people whose values are mostly unconsciously absorbed from people and culture around them, resilient people like you, folks who are built for the storm, have carefully considered their values and chose them intentionally. So what do you think? Are those values or something similar to them your values? They can be. You just choose them and start doing them. 
Ah, here we are right at the end. So in our next podcast, we'll look at how those resilient people, those people who were built for the storm and their teams think. (laughs) Just like their values, they have carefully engineered how their mind works so that they will be built for the storm. Ah, it's been enjoyable. I wish you were sitting right here. I'd share some of this surprisingly good bottom shelf. I don't know if it is or not. I'm just guessing it is by the look of it. Noah's Mill Genuine Bourbon Whiskey. Handmade in the hills of Kentucky. For some reason, I feel like that's how I need to read it. Just looking at the bottle and looking at the color, but it isn't even all that dark. They put it in a darker tinted bottle to make it even look darker. I poured it into the glass and it's like, wow. But it's actually... (laughs) surprisingly good ah by the way that's a little bit how resilient people who are built for the storm think wow that was surprisingly better than i thought it was going to be so if you're right in the middle of a storm right now lean in you're a part of something bigger than yourself it's worth it see you next time Thanks for joining me in today's School of Leadership. This podcast is part of the Archimedes Experiment, leveraged wisdom from the world's most effective leaders. If you're interested in more, go to my website, dhicks.com. Remember, my first name has only one E. Well, you'll find more short and helpful podcast books and blog posts. If this was helpful, maybe even share it with some of your friends. Have a great day.